So now, brothers and sisters, I will invite you to turn in your pew Bibles to Acts chapter 21, where we will be picking up at the end of this chapter in verse 37, and we'll be reading all the way through chapter 22, verse 29. So it's going to be a little bit longer of a passage tonight for us to work through this. Uh, But as we've been working our way through the book of Acts for the past year or so, perhaps it has occurred to you that this book reads sort of like one long adventure story. And that's uh, one way of looking at it. I think it's actually a right way of looking at it. It is a long story, and it's not just happening over the course of a couple of weeks or months or even just a couple of years. The story of Acts actually takes place over the course of more than three decades. So it's easy for for us to read through the 28 chapters of this book and to think it just happens very, very quickly, but it takes a whole lot of time for this to happen. And so for my modern mind, I kind of like to think of Acts the way that we might think of TV shows. Uh, Often TV shows, if you watch any amount of TV, they're broken up into seasons. Season one, season two, season three. And each season has all of its different episodes and the storylines that are being woven through it as it goes. And so if we were to look at Acts like this, we might say that Season one of Acts could be called Gospel Problems in Jerusalem. And so the gospel, uh, Christ ascends, we see the Holy Spirit descends in Pentecost. He tells them to go and to make disciples and to start in Jerusalem, the city they were in, and then into Judea, the region, and then Samaria, the neighboring region, and then to the ends of the earth. So that's sort of the command at the beginning of the book. And so In these first few chapters, we see them ministering in Jerusalem, preaching the gospel uh, and making clear what has happened in Christ's life and in his death and resurrection. And so we see many converts, thousands of converts, actually, as a result of Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2. We see many converts. Converts, and we see them begin to share all their things together. They shared their things in common. We even see then the diaconate office, the deacons set up in Acts chapter 6 because there's so many people to attend to that the apostles aren't able to meet the physical needs of people in Jerusalem. And so they set up an office, the deacons, to give help as is fit throughout the city. And then we're sort of left with a cliffhanger uh, when we find the martyrdom of Stephen and at the end of this sort of season. That Stephen is killed by stoning, and we're sort of maybe left wondering, well, what happens next? And so then in season two, you could say, it's thrust out for ministry to Judea, Samaria, and beyond. That's sort of the idea. They're thrust out. So now as a result of Stephen's martyrdom, the Christian gospel begins to spread beyond Jerusalem. Many of the Jews are forced to evacuate and to flee for their lives. And so we see ever so slowly, the gospel reaching foreign people. It's reaching Gentiles. So we see Philip witnessing to Sumerians and then to the Ethiopian eunuch who is baptized. That's a famous story. Then in the chapter 9, we see Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. And then he visits Jerusalem and he ventures out from there on the first missionary journey. And that takes place uh, from about, if I remember correctly, 12 to 14, those chapters. And then again, there's maybe a little bit of a cliffhanger. Paul has gone out to the, to the Gentiles, but now this creates a problem in the church. 
How are Jews and Gentiles going to be reconciled? And so this leaves us sort of on edge until chapter 15, the beginning of season 3. We might say, good news to the Gentiles. So the Jerusalem council agrees that Gentiles can become Christians without having to become Jews first. They don't need to be circumcised or to follow ceremonial customs and laws in order to be considered a part of the church. So then from here, Paul embarks out to go and spread this news. He goes out on his second and then on his third missionary journeys. And then finally, in season four, which is where we're at now, I would say, we start to see the grand finale. So Paul wraps up his missions uh, uh, to this, this, his second and third journeys come to a close and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And that's where we find him now. And he's, uh, now he's being arrested. That's what we've been reading for the past couple of weeks. Arrested, captured in the temple. And now he's going to be making a defense. That's what we'll see tonight. And then spoiler alerts, of course, he's going to appeal and he'll be taken to Caesarea, which is a neighboring city, not far from Jerusalem, but it's on the Mediterranean coast. And he will make a defense uh, known to the governor named Felix. And then from there, he will be taken. Nothing is decided. He is taken then to Rome. And on his way to Rome, there's the famous shipwreck in Malta. And then he gets to Rome and he shares what he's been teaching with the Jewish or Jewish people there, not all who are Christians, and some believe and some don't believe. And that's where the book ends. Paul in Rome, finally getting where he said all along that he wanted to go. And so as we lay this out, we can get a better grip of where we're at in this story. As I've said in the past couple of weeks, we're sort of at the beginning of the end then. We're at the beginning of season four, the grand finale. And so in tonight's passage, we'll see uh, Paul making a defense for himself against those who are accusing him in the temple. So let's pray. Father, as we turn to your word, help us to read it well, to read it and to mark it and to inwardly digest it, that we may be changed by it. Lord, we know that your word has power. So open it up to us and to our hearts, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. So here's what we read from Acts chapter 21 all the way up to 22, verse 29. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, May I say something to you? And he said, Do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, He addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, 
being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven heavenly, or suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight from him and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord... They themselves know that in one synagogue after another I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, Go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune offered or ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, Yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune was also afraid 
For he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Back when I was younger, in my high school days, one of those questions that would always make me feel sort of a lump welling up in my throat, it would give me a little bit of anxiety, was the question, Zach, what do you want to do with your life? What are you going to be when you grow up, when you get older? And of course, I knew this was a good question, and it was something that I, I didn't really hate, but I didn't really know how to answer it always. Just like every other high schooler, I was still very much in the process of trying to figure out who I was, trying to figure out what I was gifted at, what my different aptitudes were for different things, or maybe my lack thereof. And I was trying to figure out how all of this was coalescing and developing and seeing how God was trying to make me who I was. I was just sort of fumbling my way through life, and I still wasn't very sure. I didn't think of myself as a particularly smart person. I didn't think of myself as being somebody who was really gifted with my hands. I had worked on a berry farm in my summers as a high schooler, and I knew enough to know that I don't work well with farmers. Farmers don't like me. I'm not very good at working with my hands. I could work hard, but I often just didn't quite get what they were saying. I can remember my my friend's dad, who was a berry farmer, he would often give me instructions, and I would go and mess up those instructions one after another. Uh, It's a wonder that my wife is so forgiving with me even now. Uh, And so I kind of knew that I'm not good at that, so I'm still trying to figure out what what I wanted to do. And I remember this question began to begin to get more serious as my high school years went on. And I thought, well, my dad, you know, he's a physician's assistant. I could maybe go into the medical world. I felt that I was relatively interested in in biology and anatomy. And so I thought maybe that would be for me. I really liked to help people. I liked the idea of working Monday through Friday and having weekends off and making a good living and so on and so forth. So I thought that maybe that would be a fulfilling line of work. But deep down, if you really drilled down deep, you would have heard me say I wanted to be a musician. And I'm not talking about being a choral or classical music musician, uh, although I was in the jazz choir at the time. Uh, I wanted to be in what most of us would consider a heavy metal band. Uh, I was actually in a band my sophomore and junior year. Um, I won't go too much into the details, but I was the screamer guy. I was the one who would scream into the microphone. Yeah, that was me. Um, And if I had pictures of this, I I would show you. Uh, But this, of course, didn't work out. And thank the Lord, it did not. Um, I ended up not being able to go into music because my band kicked me out of the band. And I didn't graduate with a great GPA. I had a 3.6 or something. So I wasn't really set for medical school. And so I really had to still figure this one out by the time I had graduated. And neither of these things, of course... Neither of them worked out. But I can remember throughout all of this that my pastor at the time shared with me a really important lesson along the way. And it actually had to do with the Apostle Paul. And it's something that came to mind this week as I was reading through this passage. 
And he talked about how God, in his sovereignty, had perfectly raised this man up, this man Saul, to fulfill exactly the mission that the Lord had for him. Despite his checkered past, of course, and his days spent persecuting Christians, God used all of these various elements in Paul's life to minister and to bring the good news to the Gentiles, to spend his whole life pouring himself out for their sake. It took a unique individual. And so eventually things began to get a little bit clearer for me. I began to live a little bit more of my life, get a few more experiences under my belt, and some difficult things happened. Not only was I kicked out of my band, which really wasn't a huge deal. It didn't devastate me or anything like that. I think they only played two shows after that, so it wasn't a big deal. But what did hurt me in high school was my high school girlfriend breaking up with me. That was a hard moment. And her telling me that I wasn't cool enough to be her boyfriend. Those were her words. Um, My sister and I got in a fight in high school. And she told me that I was the most awkward person she'd ever met. And that confirmed what I already felt to be true as a young, awkward high schooler. Uh, I, I was hearing that. And I was saying, this is confirmed. I must really, truly be the most awkward person. My sister, by the way, was the prom queen and ASB student body president. So she was Mrs. Popular telling me that I was the most awkward person she knew. And so these things crushed me. These experiences hurt me and damaged me in really tremendous ways. And I've talked about them a lot with my high school students. And that's all kind of the point here. I experienced some things that in those years of my life pushed me into church. I'd already been going to church, but I began to see the importance of it all the more. Those were the experiences that cast me as a 17-year-old even on to the Lord. And I ran to him and I began to see that the rock of Christ was my only hope. And that the church was a good place for me to be. I loved the church. I began to see how much my youth pastor and my youth leaders cared for me. I began to see how much my own my pastor cared for me. Him and I became great friends. And I was reminded in all of this that God truly is there for us in times of comfort. A simple message, but it was an experience that for me has given me insight, I think, that I wouldn't have had otherwise. And just the other day, I was actually going through my old journals, and I found a journal from my high school years, and I got to see the pain I felt. A lot of my journal entries were about my girlfriend breaking up with me, which is all petty to think about now, but at the time, it was the most important thing in my life. And I, but I saw more importantly, I got to see my own prayers. They were simple prayers, not exactly the most profound prayers, but they were prayers where I got to see how God has worked in my life. He has been faithful to me throughout all of this. And so throughout it all, I can see now with a great deal of clarity how God was shaping me and developing me into who he is wanting me to be. And even still, this is happening. I have a long ways to go. And I definitely don't want to make this sermon about me, but I saw this point in Paul that the Lord had used him and developed him over the course of his life. And I saw a lesson in there for myself. God knows what he's doing then. That's, that's something we can say. And this is all very clear in tonight's passage. 
Tonight's passage is where we see the apostle giving up or standing up and giving a defense of himself. And he's recollecting all that the Lord has done. He's recollecting his whole life and he's using it to do a few things to talk about his own calling, but also to bring judgment, I would argue, on the people that are listening. And so let's sort of set the stage again and we can dive back into the text here. So as we saw last week, Paul was captured uh, at the temple and he was brought out of the temple and he then is arrested. The Roman guards come running in and grab him from the people who presumably were about to kill him. They arrest him, take him into their own custody and begin to take him away from the people. This ends up actually saving Paul's life. And so they had been stationed Uh, in their little station called the Fortress of Antonia, which is right outside the temple grounds. And they come running in and they take him. And so they're carrying him back to their barracks now in order to protect him from the crowds. And here is where tonight's passage picks up when Paul, as he's being carried back, you can imagine Paul being carried by these guards. uh, He asks, can I say something? Can Can I speak up? And so he asks the man, may I say something? He says this to the tribune. And the Greek soldier is really befuddled at this point in time. He hears Paul speaking and he asks him, wait a second, you, you speak Greek? And so he's confused here because he didn't expect Paul to be so fluent in Greek. And so he goes into an explanation of how he thought that Paul was this Egyptian Jew who some years ago, as historians actually can concur, some years before this, actually tried to lead a revolt in the city of Jerusalem to overthrow the Roman oppressors. And so they started that at the temple. But Word went around that this was about to happen, and so before they could get very far, their uprising was was squashed. And so this tribune thinks that Paul is this man. Though they they got rid of this man's army, they crushed them. It was about four thousand men, as the text says. The man himself escaped, and so the guards would have been on high alert ever since, thinking maybe this Egyptian Jewish uh, revolutionary is going to come back to Jerusalem and come back to the temple and start something again. So when something starts to happen and this crazy mob begins to violently react in the temple to this man, the centurions and the tribune are thinking, this must be that Egyptian revolutionary. And so he's confused by the fact that Paul not only speaks Greek, but probably that he speaks very fluent Greek. Just in these few words where Paul says, may I say something to you, the tribune is caught off guard. Wait a second, you speak Greek so fluently. And so Paul goes on to explain that, well, yes, I'm, I'm a Jew. I'm from the city of Tarsus, and, which is a city in Asia Minor, where it, Paul even says it was no obscure city. And this city, would have, they would have spoken perfectly fluent Greek. And so he is shocked by this discovery. Um, and so he allows Paul to stand up. He allows Paul to have his chance to explain himself. Uh, and the, their reaction of the people is really interesting here. It's even a little bit humorous, I might say. Uh, it says that in verse 40, when there was a great hush, 
he addressed the crowd in their Hebrew language. So now Paul has gone from speaking in Greek, which he knew fluently. Now he's speaking in, quote, the Hebrew language, which probably would have been Aramaic, the time that day-to-day Jews were, were uh, speaking at that time. It was also the language of Christ. So not the Hebrew language, but actually the Aramaic language. But Luke calls it the Hebrew language in order to, uh, I think, uh, explain what Paul was trying to do. Paul is trying to placate these people in a certain way, as we'll see. So he speaks to them in the Hebrew language and people start to hush. They're surprised, I think, that this man who they've just tried to kill is now brave and bold enough to stand up and to speak before them. And so as he starts to speak, their jaws, you can imagine, probably begin to hit the floor. Just as it was with his Greek, so too is his Hebrew speech polished and pure. He mentions that while he was born in the city of Tarsus, he was actually brought up, he says, in the city of Jerusalem as a young boy under the tutelage of Gamaliel. And so when we consider all of this, we can imagine that Paul's Hebrew language or his Aramaic was also extremely fluent. And because of his great education, it was probably the case that he was not only fluent, but very eloquent, gifted at speaking. And so, once again, the the lesson of my old pastor is here made clear. And it will get even clearer as we go, but the, the lesson is this. Paul was an incredibly unique individual with an incredibly unique set of skills and experiences and privileges. So all of the fairly odd features of Paul's life, his background, his upbringing, his experience, were divinely assembled bit by bit to equip him and for his calling as the first apostle to the Gentiles. Thus we might stop and ask ourselves then, How are we using our skills and our abilities, our privileges and our experiences to bear witness to the Lord more faithfully? For Paul, his devout religious upbringing combined with his ability to speak both Greek and the Hebrew language would have made him perfectly fit for this ministry, taking the gospel of the Jewish Messiah to the Gentiles. And so maybe your background... Uh, in your background, you have, you have learned or experienced something that helps you to better uh, proclaim the gospel of Christ to those around you. Uh, I, I don't know what it is. Maybe it's from farming or from finance or from educational backgrounds that makes you able to do things that maybe other people are not able to do. Maybe your, your mind works more analytically. Maybe you're a more personable person because of your background. Maybe you've experienced difficult things that perfectly situate you for ministry to those uh, who are suffering or going through difficult things just like you. Whatever the case may be, the point here is clear. God gives us special gifts and aptitudes. So are you making the most of them for the kingdom? So having said all of this, we should also look at the actual content of Paul's speech. I would be remiss if we didn't really go in that direction at all. And there's a lot here to examine, but I'll try to be simple and merciful to you all and break it up into two simple points. The first is that Paul argues for his Jewishness. He wants to establish that he is a Jew and that he's not only a Jew, but a good Jew. 
That's a big part of his argument. And number two, he argues against the hard-heartedness of the Jewish people. Against them. So he argues for his own credentials, and he argues against them and shows them their error. And so the first point, Paul was a Jew's Jew. Or as he would say in the book of Philippians in chapter 3, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. So he speaks the Hebrew language. There's different ways we can see him arguing for his Jewishness. He speaks the Jewish language. He addresses the crowd as brothers and fathers in verse 1. Sort of a very nice thing to say to a bunch of people who have been just trying to kill you. So he wants them to see that he respects them. He respects their Jewishness. It's the point we've been looking at for the past few weeks. And so he begins then by appealing to his deep connections. The, 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 the beginning of his, of his defense is appealing to his deep connections to Judaism, to the nation, to the religion. He even goes so far as to recount, as though it's extra points for him, that his zeal led him to persecute followers of the way. That is, Christians. So he was such a, a zealous, serious Jew that he was persecuting Christians. And he mentions even returning to Jerusalem after his conversion and praying in this very same temple that he's standing outside of right now. And he mentions, of course, even that when he goes into Damascus, there's this man named Ananias. And he says this in verse 12, who was a devout man and was well spoken of all or, or well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there. So he's even wanting to show that this man Ananias, who helped me in my the early stages of my Christian walk, he himself was a devout Jew who all the Jews where he lived in Damascus, they considered him a devout Jew. And so given all of these overtures, I think it's fair to say that Paul was attempting to establish his Jewish credentials. Recall the accusation of the mob back in chapter 1, verse 28, where they attack him and say, this is the man who was teaching everyone everywhere. Definitely a good bit of hyperbole here. Everyone everywhere against the people, that is the Jewish people, and the law, and this place, which of course is the temple. So Paul is responding to that accusation that that he was teaching against the law and the people and the temple. But again, he's not just trying to play nice with the mob. He's not just trying to butter them up and make them feel good about themselves. Some interpreters might see it this way. But I think when we consider Paul's second point, it's quite clear to see that his aim was not to flatter them. It was to make an argument against them. It's a defense, he says, at the beginning of chapter 22. He stands up and begins to make a defense, an apologia, an argument, not just defending himself, but actually, I think, going on the offensive as well. And so, again, the second point of Paul's speech is to show how Jerusalem and the Jews there had become a stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. They had rejected the Messiah, and they especially hated that this gospel included unclean Gentiles. It's interesting in the passage that they let Paul go on as he's talking about meeting the Messiah, the Damascus Road conversion. They allow that to continue on. But it's when Paul starts talking about the Gentiles in the temple. He has a vision in the temple and he has this, he has this vision of the Lord telling him to go to the Gentiles in the temple. This is what finally gets under their skin. 
And so Paul shows their hard-heartedness in various ways. In verses 6 through 11, he tells his conversion story uh, on the road to Damascus, uh, which interestingly, he adds that though those who were with him, his fellow Jewish persecutors, they could understand that something was happening and they saw the light. They could not understand the voice that was speaking as if to sort of say, that because they had rejected this Messiah so much, they were still not able to understand. Uh, they were not given that spiritual insight. And then in verse 15, he recounts Ananias' charge to him that he will be used by God as a witness to everyone, not just to the Jews. This probably is what begins to get under the crowd's skin a little bit. That Ananias said Paul was going to go to everyone. And then in Verses 17 and following, we see the most damning part of the speech of all. He tells of his vision in the Jerusalem temple where Jesus says to him, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. Now, this actually isn't actually told in the book of Acts up to this point. This is the first time we hear of this particular episode. That isn't to say it's not true. Uh, But it's just to say that if you go back in Acts, you won't find this. But certainly for Paul to even say this to the crowd, we can get the sense that these are really fighting words. He knows that what he's saying to them is going to make them even more angry. Here he's telling them, that the citizens of Jerusalem, that many, many years before this, the Lord himself had met Paul in this same temple and had told him that these people will not listen to you. Therefore, you must go to the Gentiles. And so all of this is to make a case for their hard-heartedness, for their judgment. And finally, when they hear those words, go, or I will send you to the Gentiles, that's it. Up to this point, they were able to listen, but here they could go no further. And that's exactly what Luke records in verse 22, where he says these amazing words. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And so at once they returned to their raging, thus prompting the Roman guards to take Paul again, bring him back into the barracks. And finally, in this final episode, verses 22 and 29, they begin to think that we're going to continue examining this man to figure out who he is, what he's up to. And so we're going to flog him in order to get answers out of him. And here again, we see Paul reveal a particular card that he'd been sort of leaving in his back pocket up to this point. He had said that he's a citizen of Tarsus, uh, but he hasn't quite made it exactly clear that he also is a Roman citizen. And so he lets them know who he is. He reveals his card. And again, this point reminds us of that same point we made earlier. Paul was that unique man, divinely suited for the calling that God had given him. You might say that in a life vocation that required many colors, Paul was God's chameleon. He could change colors as needed in order to make the gospel uh, spoken, to bring it forth to new peoples. And that was an amazing, amazing thing. And so as we think back on this rather long episode of what I've called season four of the book of Acts, this is obviously an important point to make, I think, Paul's particular giftedness. But we might add to it another one, and it's a simple one. 
It's, it's one that we may even walk out of here and say, is that really, really that, was, that was the final point? But it's this. We should be thankful that the Lord has given salvation to the Gentiles. And we should pray for the Jews. There's, of course, times in church history, not just in the 20th century, where Christians have wrongly hated Jews. And this led to a point in the 20th century where a nation that proclaimed itself a Christian nation so wrongly understood the relationship between Gentiles and Jews that they were led to killing six million Jews. So we need to think about this and reflect on our own Gentileness. It is a gift of God that we are saved. It is a gift of God that His grace has been extended to us through hundreds of thousands of Pauls. People that God has uniquely created and gifted and called to do ministry, to tell others in foreign lands this same gospel. So in His divine sovereignty and mercy, the Lord has taken what was rejected by the Jews and He has given it to the Gentiles. Therefore, unlike them in their day, we ought simply to praise Him, to receive it, to cherish it, all the while praying that the Jews would come to know the Lord. Just a couple of years ago, we had a Jewish man come from Jews for Jesus. This is a great ministry where Christian Jews are ministering to other Jews And they are seeing great conversions happening, great things happening. This is something we should pray for. We should pray for this. But all the while, we should simply be thankful that Paul was faithful and many have been faithful so that we too may know this gospel. Let's pray.